0: Good morning. Hey, before we jump into the message today, we had kind of a special announcement, and so I'm going to ask Brian Dillon to come on up here. Brian is our student minister here at our Valley campus. He's going to kind of lead the way on this announcement, so he was all the way in the back. We'll just wait for him. (laughs) That's funny.
1: I don't know if you've, you've heard, heard, Steve, but that bumper video is short. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> uh, no. very short. At least this is the last week. Uh, well, uh, I am here uh, to tell you all today about uh, a new position here at Gateway, and that is the position uh, of executive minister. This is a position that uh, we are creating as somebody that will go across uh, campuses and uh, help... Uh, help Dave Stauffer, our senior pastor, uh, take the load off him a little bit. As the church has grown, which has been amazing, uh, a lot of his day-to-day and administrative activities have started to crowd into the senior pastor and kind of leading us as a church. And so uh, the elders have decided that uh, they wanted to create this executive minister position. Now, the reason that I'm telling you about this is because uh, this week it was announced uh, to the staff that I am going to be uh, that executive minister. And so. Uh, <laughs> he, he got booze first. I know. This, so. I, I changed how I let in. I should have done that. Can we go back? Uh, no. Uh, so, But that also might mean they, they don't like me as much. I don't know. Uh, there so, are more students in here. As part, <laughs> As part of uh, that, that means I will no longer be uh, the full-time student minister here at Taze Valley. (laughs) And uh, and so uh, this starts uh, as long as everything, as the world doesn't crash financially here in about, what, uh, two weeks? Uh, (laughs) But as long as that doesn't happen, uh, then I will continue on with this January 1st. And so I'll be here for the next couple months uh, and making sure now part of that is the interesting part about this is as the exiting student minister, uh, I would be helping Steve find my replacement, but now as the incoming executive minister, I will also be helping Steve <laughs> find a replacement. So it's kind of double, uh, so the, the hope is that everything that you guys, first of all, you guys have rocked it out with your generous giving during this, Uh, pandemic and given above and beyond what we would have expected and that's been amazing and so that allows us to do things like this but also many other things but if that continues on then everything will go on and uh, we will find a new student minister for our, our students that can do um better than me but uh is the hope really but uh Right now, uh, one of the things, I didn't really say this last service, but one of the things uh, that, one of the ways we structure things is that our small group leaders are our front-facing people. And so uh, our small group leaders will remain the same. I haven't, I told them yesterday and I didn't have anybody tell me that they were leaving the church or anything like that. Uh, they sounded really happy, I don't know. But, uh, so they, the small group leaders that are with the students on a weekly basis will continue to be with the small with the students on a weekly basis. Uh, and, you know, depending on how things go, I might still be teaching some after the first year and pulling a little bit of double duty, uh, but I'll be working with our, our volunteers to make sure that uh, for our students, which is one of my biggest concerns, that our students would not uh, just go by the wayside because that would be the opposite of what we wanted in this. And so if you have any questions, uh, you know, you can ask me or ask Steve or one of our elders. um, But uh, if you are the parent of a student or one of our students here, I want you to know that we're working hard to make sure that We don't lose anybody out of this, so uh, other than me. So, um, Ashley and I are not moving. We're not, uh, that's the good thing about all this. We're not going anywhere. Um, I might be here less, uh, and you might see less of me, but we'll still be around. And uh, we're thankful for that because we love you guys so much. Steve brought me here about five and a half years ago, and uh, it was a rare opportunity to be able to work with your high school minister. Uh, as, as part of this. And so it's been an amazing, and you all have been amazing to Ashley and I and our family and um, praying for our youngest as he's been dealing with all kinds of health issues, and we have been so grateful for you guys. Uh, and so uh, usually when you get a new position in ministry, you have to move somewhere, and that means starting over with relationships and everything. And so this has been an awesome opportunity where, yes, it's a new position, but I get to stay uh, close to you all. And so, um, yeah, that's, uh, I, I, I'm just, I'm excited for the opportunity, but also I I, I said in the first service, I don't know if my heart's quite ready fully, uh, for leaving, uh, my students. And and so that's, uh, that's kind of where we're at, but, uh, thank you, uh, for all that you've done for us and my family.
0: I think Ashley's already headed home, right? So she was here for service. But I want to pause and pray for Brian and Ashley, their boys, Judah and Asher, and then we'll dismiss the students after that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for Brian and Ashley, for their leadership with our student ministry, for their example that they set, not just for our students, uh, but for all of us uh, with the lives that they lead, for their love for you. Uh, the example that they set in their marriage, in their care for their kids, and um, and just how they live their lives. And so I thank you for the work that, that Brian has done with our students and leading that ministry so well. Uh, I think of when he first got here, uh, just how small that ministry was and how he's uh, under your guidance and leadership has been able to develop that that student ministry. And we know we know, God, that, that uh, no ministry, no work on earth is dependent on one person, um, that, that we are all replaceable. Uh, but it will be uh, difficult to see Brian transition, but we're also very excited for he and his family in this new role. And so I pray that we would keep our eyes focused on the one that does matter, and that's you. And so I pray that our, our uh, mission would continue to remain the same, that we are here to make disciples, um, that that whoever comes in to take Brian's uh, role, that you would prepare them now, um, that they would have just an excellent transition in, and that they would continue to lead with integrity and lead our students to to know, follow, and serve you with their lives, not just for a season, but their entire lives, and uh, that they would continue to partner with parents. We know that the parent role is so essential in all of this, um, that, that a, a student minister can get the students for an hour or two or so a week, um, but the real investment is, is what parents are, are doing in the lives of their students. And so I pray that we, the person we find would also do a great job of just partnering with parents like Brian has done. So we pray that you would prepare Brian for this new role, uh, that, that he would just excel in it, um, that this would be incredibly beneficial for our church in keeping us united, in keeping us on the same page, and taking care of some of the administrative tasks that are, have just gotten a bit overwhelming. And so we're thankful for Brian that he's able to step in, and we're thankful that he's not leaving Gateway. Uh, so thank you for his, his work here and that he's not done, and that you're not done working in and through him. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, thank you. Students, you guys can be dismissed All right, so as they're headed out, uh, I'm going to ask you all to do some imagining for a moment and answer some questions in your head. So I want you to imagine that a genie comes up to you, and the genie is going to grant you seven wishes based on these seven questions, your answer to these seven questions. The first is this. If you could have someone else's car, what would you drive? And don't answer out loud, by the way. (laughs) If you could have the home of anyone, where would you live? If you could have anyone else's abilities, mental, physical, spiritual, emotional, what would you want? If you could have anyone else's physical appearance, who would you look like? Again, don't shout out Steve, okay? don't. Say. If you could have anyone's possessions, what would you want? If you could have anyone's spouse, who would you be married to? If you could trade lives with anyone, who would you trade with? So if you had an answer to any of these questions, you just violated the 10th commandment. That was such a setup. That's really rude of me. And if you didn't have an answer, I would say you probably violated the 9th commandment that we talked about last week about not lying, Right? So since the middle of August, we have been in this series called Your Ten Greatest Challenges where we've been studying the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. And as we've said, these commandments establish the framework for our relationship with God and with others. And they are a reflection of the nature and character of God. And today, today, we finally get to the Tenth Commandment. So let's read it together. We're going to put it up on the screen here. Let's read this together. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. You shall not covet. So dictionary.com defines covet as to desire wrongfully, inordinately, or without due regard to the rights of others. To desire wrongfully, to, to desire. To desire what someone else has. Now, that's pretty hard to measure, isn't it? That's pretty hard to to quantify. I mean, as we've studied these other nine commandments, all of those commandments, at least on the surface, they deal with external things, right? Like you could identify a specific behavior that violates what God says in those commandments. Think about taking the Lord's name in vain. You know the behavior that, that violates that. Breaking the Sabbath, murder, stealing, lying. All of these are behaviors that can be seen or heard. But this commandment is different. This commandment deals with thoughts and attitudes that are hidden away in our mind and in our hearts. And though we may not be able to see them externally, if if someone is coveting, we can't see it. Coveting can be the cause of the behavior that violates all the other commandments. How so? We know this because all behavior gets its start where? In the heart. In Deuteronomy 5.21, coveting is defined for us in this way. It says, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not set your desire. I like that, setting your desire. You shall not set your desire on your neighbor's house or land, his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. In James chapter 4, verse 2, we read further about this, this desire that leads to behavior. He writes, you desire, but you do not have, so you kill. So you have this desire, and then it, it results in an external behavior. You covet but you cannot get what you want. So, what do you do? You, you quarrel and you fight. The desires held in the hidden places of our heart are only known to God and ourselves. Others may not know it. You know, my neighbor would know if I stole his car, or at least he would know someone stole his car. I kind of think I'd be a really good thief and not get caught. But he would know that his car is at least missing. My, my, na- my neighbor would know if I lied to him. He may not know it's a lie, but he would at least be able to hear the words that I said that were a lie. But my neighbor would never know if I coveted his car, or his wife, or his paycheck. In fact, nobody knows the thoughts of our hearts and our secret desires unless we tell them. It is only God that knows. So I think we tend to believe, though, that in the Old Testament era, God was only concerned about behavior. and He was not interested in the heart. You know, Some people think that, that God somehow changed his mind halfway through the Bible and that only when Jesus came around that he was interested in the impulses that are behind our behaviors. But that's simply not true, is it? It was God in the Old Testament who told Samuel that he was not choosing Jesse's oldest or tallest son, Eliab, as king, But he was choosing the youngest, David. And here's what he said. He said, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I've rejected him. I've rejected this oldest son. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance. But the Lord looks at the heart. And so in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus made this connection crystal clear for us when he spoke not just about the letter of the law, but about the spirit of the law. That God has always, always, always looked deeper than the outward behavior of the law. And this is exactly what we see in the 10th commandment. It's about the heart. It's about desire. So when the Bible talks about the heart, it's not talking about just this physical organ in the chest. We know this, right? It's talking about the center of a person. And we still use this language today. We'll say something like, well, we really need to get to the heart of the matter. Well, we need, what we're talking about is we're trying to get to the essence, get to the source so, the Bible talks about the heart as being the source, the center of a person. It uses the word heart some 900 times. And the issue with coveting is a heart issue, it's a heart desire. It's an internal issue that leads to an external action. And here's something important for us to know that God doesn't just call us to do right, He calls us to be right. He doesn't just call us to do right, but to be right. He looks at the motives behind our behavior and he calls us to purify our heart. And so for the past nine weeks, for each command, what we've been doing is we've been connecting a challenge to that command and we want to do the same today. The last challenge today is a challenge with contentment. And the challenge is to be satisfied with Jesus, to be satisfied with Jesus. You know, there, there are many who claim that there's nothing different about the Ten Commandments than the normal structure and framework of, for, for other religions and cultures. They basically try to equate all religions as the same, because all religions, you know, basically tell us not to murder or to steal or to lie and things like that. But that, that, that conclusion is, is so far off base, because this Tenth Commandment, it changes everything, doesn't it? You won't find other moral codes and religions that are trying to govern the inward desires of people. You just won't. Christianity teaches, again, the people who do right things morally, ethically, spiritually. Those people who do right things, they're still in need of a savior. Think about those of us who are gathered in this room today. I would imagine that for the most part, we we, we do a lot of the right things, right? We do a lot of right things. We do a lot of external good. I mean, except for Tim, right? Tim's the worst, but I'm just playing. But, but we are people who do right for the most part. You know, we go to church. We try to keep the commandments. We try and live right. We're, we're blessed with material things. I mean, I know it's been pretty crazy with this whole virus thing, but in general, we live a pretty good life. And if we're not careful, this, this makes it difficult then for us to realize how much we need Jesus. There's a little bit less of a desperation, isn't there? When we read through the Gospels, we see that the first people who responded to Jesus were primarily the down and out of the world. The prostitutes, the sinners, the tax collectors, the poor, the oppressed. And as I read that list, it's, it's far different from the lives most of us live. And if we're really being honest with ourselves, I would suspect that most of us we don't really feel a desperation of need for a savior like they did. We tend to see our faith, our our religious behavior as something that we offer to God. Like, here you go, God. Aren't you glad I gave this to you? As something we're presenting to God as something great. And so then when we mix a little bit of our faith into that, we feel like we're in pretty good standing when it comes to final judgment. And so this challenge today, this really could be the the challenge not only of our lives, but also for an entire generation of American Christians. To be satisfied with Jesus. Like Jesus plus nothing still equals everything. How many of us could really say that? that? That we don't want for, that we don't desire for more and more and more because we have all we need in Jesus I think so many times we want to add to that equation, don't we? So to help us with this challenge, I want us to examine two men in the Bible who are a lot like us. The first man's story is found in all three of the synoptic gospels. So synoptic just means similar. So we're talking about Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And and it's the story of what we call the rich young ruler. Many of you probably know this story. In in many ways, though, we could call it uh, the story about the young man who's living out the American dream. If he had been living in our day, this young man, he would have been the brightest of the brightest. He would have been the best of the best. He would have been voted most likely to succeed. He would have excelled in sports in high school. He'd been at the top of his class in college. He'd maybe married his college sweetheart. He'd gotten a great job right out of college, started a family, be making six figures by the time he's 30. Maybe he'd coach his kids' little league teams. Maybe he'd serve at his church. He'd be a man who reads his Bible, who prays. He'd be a faithful husband. He'd be a good father. He'd have an exceptional reputation within his community and within his church. And so this rich young ruler, he finds out that Jesus is in town, and he comes up to Jesus, and he says this. He says, teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? And you can almost picture him coming up with like a notebook, getting ready to take notes to make sure he's got all of his bases covered. And Jesus says, well, why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. To which I can imagine this young man probably going, okay, good, because I've been doing that. I've been doing that. But just for for clarity, Jesus, or, or maybe he just wanted to pat on his back, he says, which ones, which commandments? To which Jesus replied, well, you shall not murder, commandment number six. You shall not commit adultery, number seven. Shall not steal, number eight. Shall not give false testimony, number nine. Honor your father and your mother, number five. And love your neighbor as yourself, which pretty much summarizes all of those love other commands, right? And again, I can just imagine the guy going, check, 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 right? And he even says, all of these I've kept. What do I still lack? But notice the commandment that Jesus did not specifically mention. Commandment number 10, you shall not covet. Why? Why wouldn't he mention that one? I think it's because he's getting ready to apply this commandment to this man's heart. In verse 21, Jesus answered, If you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor, and, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. This young man goes away sad, and when I read this, I kind of walk away sad too. Jesus gave this guy a chance to come clean, but he was holding on to his pride in the things that he did and doing all of the right things. But then Jesus just shot an arrow right down to the deep part of his soul. This man struggled with contentment. That was the great challenge of his life. Jesus was not enough for him. And so when he heard these words from Jesus, it says he went away sad because all his life, All his life, he had done all the right things. Everything his culture told him he needed to do to be successful, he did. Yet he still had a problem. And I think he knew. I think he knew he had a problem. I think he knew that something was missing. He just couldn't put his finger on it. Maybe that's why he he said, what is it that I still lack? What do I still lack? Why is it that I keep doing all the right things, but I still feel a little bit empty? Uh, on the outside, everything looks right. How come on the inside, there feels like there's something missing? You see, it was a problem that didn't show up externally, it was a heart problem. And listen, if Christianity was just a program for promoting good behavior, all that would matter would be us doing right things. And, and it would be no different than any other world religion. But it is different. God calls us, again, not to, to do right, not just to do right, but to be right. The heart of our problem is the problem of our heart. So let's look at another man in the New Testament who fits this profile of the rich young ruler. In fact, there are some who have actually speculated that the man I'm about to talk about was the rich young ruler when he was younger. Now, that's purely speculation, but this man's name was Saul of Tarsus, or you might know him now as The Apostle Paul. So, like the rich young ruler, he had kept the commandments all his life. He was born into a wealthy family, went to the best school, studied under the best and brightest minds. He became very influential even at a young age. In fact, you can read all about his credentials. He writes about them in Philippians 3. Basically, Paul was saying he had all education, citizenship, standing, prestige, power, influence, religious piety, reputation, leadership. He had it all. Everything that people in his world would look for, would want, he had it. But then Paul had an encounter with the risen Jesus that changed his life forever, including changing the way he thought. And in Romans chapter 7, starting in verse 7, he would write this. He said, What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. So in Philippians 3, he was talking about his life before Christ. And his life before Christ was all about doing right. It was all about keeping the law. But here in Romans chapter 7, he described what happened after he met Jesus. And the commandments didn't prove him to be a law keeper. Like they thought, like everyone would think they would. You know, again, thinking about the commands that Jesus listed, he would have, Paul would have gone, check, 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 check. Instead, the law made him aware of his sinfulness. And do you know which commandment specifically showed him this? You can probably guess it. It's the 10th commandment. You shall not covet. Let's read further. He says, For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had said you shall not covet. If the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. You hear what he's saying? He had everything going for him. He was doing all the right things. And then he was confronted with the reality of the 10th commandment. And it cut right to his heart. It knocked him down with the reality that he wasn't as good as he thought he was. On the outside, he looked great. But he realized there was something missing. There was something off. And in verse 9, we read how this commandment just rocked his world. Have you ever read a a verse? And you've read it before, maybe several times before. But you kind of missed the point of it. And then all of a sudden, you read it one day, and, and you are awakened to what it really is saying, and it just blows you away. And that's, that's what Paul is describing here. He, he was shaken into, the under, into understanding the reality of the 10th commandment. And so here's what he writes in verse 9. He says, once I, uh, once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life, and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me. And through the commandment, put me to death. Now some of you, you've had this this terrible experience before, whether it's been with you or a loved one, where you or the loved one had a scan done, and that scan revealed that you had cancer or your loved one had cancer. But wouldn't it be kind of ridiculous to say that the scanning machine is what caused the cancer? That would be kind of ridiculous, right? No, the machine, all it did was awaken you to or make you aware of your condition, right? And that's what Paul is basically saying about the law. It awakened him to sin, awakened him to knowing that he is a lawbreaker, specifically coveting. And we know what sin does, right? It separates us from God and it causes death. That's that's the punishment of sin. The wages of sin is death. But instead of dying physically, it brought Paul to a different death. He would say in Galatians 2.20, that I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So both the rich young ruler and the Apostle Paul, they came face to face with the 10th commandment and with Jesus. And one of them walked away sad, but presumably continued on living a good life, right? And the other one let himself die so that he could really live. He died to self and allowed Jesus to live within him. Again, the heart of our problem is the problem of our heart. And we can't fix the problem. Only Jesus can. We, we, can't treat the, we can treat the symptoms, but we cannot cure the disease. So I've mentioned this before, but in college, I, I used to run cross-country, and I played tennis. I know very manly sports. Um, but I was, in, I was in really, really good shape, right? Uh, so right after college, I took a, a youth ministry position at a church near Columbus, Ohio, and the church offered me a, a life insurance plan. And so I had to fill out this health questionnaire and do some blood work before I could get the life insurance. Long story short, I got turned down for life insurance. I was 23 years old and I got turned down for life insurance. What had happened is they, they discovered protein in my urine and at the time I didn't know this, I've learned a lot since, but apparently you're not supposed to, you're only supposed to spill between like zero and 150 milligrams of protein in your urine and I was spilling between five and seven thousand milligrams of protein and that indicated something seriously wrong with my kidneys. So on the outside, again, I was the picture of health. Like I had a little body fat test taken when I was in college. It was like 6 or 7%, you know. I was, I was lean. I could run for miles and miles and miles. But on the inside, I was sick. In fact, my nephrologist told me that if I didn't get things under control, I, had, I, I would be on dialysis in 5 to 10 years and waiting for a kidney transplant. So again, here's the thing. On the outside, <laughs> this wasn't showing up. I had no external symptoms. I wasn't tired or fatigued. I wasn't jaundiced or anything like that. I didn't even, <laughs> I didn't even have a local doctor at the time when I found out I, why I got turned down. They had to like, send my medical records to my pediatrician up near Cleveland because I hadn't been to a doctor for years. I, just, I didn't need to, right? So I met with a, a nephrologist, a kidney doctor, And I I asked this nephrologist, what can I do? Like, what can I do to get things right? Like, can I exercise more? Just change my diet? Whatever, you know, what what do I do? Uh, I wanted to take care of it, right? And of course, exercising and eating right are good things to do, but my problem was not something I could fix externally. My problem was on the inside. I had to get to the source of the problem, and there was nothing I could do on my own to fix this problem. Isn't that frustrating? You ever had that and you're just like, I'll do it, I'll do it. Whatever you want me to do, I'll do. And and there's nothing you can do to fix it. And so all, all, all that could happen was my doctor prescribed some medicine and that medicine was supposed to help improve my kidney function and uh, slowly would result in me spilling less protein. Um, that process though, it actually took me over 13 years to get into a normal range. So it slowly went down over the years. What I'm getting is, at is for us, we, we cannot fix our problem with this commandment by focusing on external good, by, by treating the symptoms. In fact, some of us, we don't even have any symptoms showing up, do we? We are externally living right. We are doing all the right things on the outside, but we are not touching the actual disease. It is a heart problem. So if the heart of our problem is the problem of our heart, how do we change our heart you know, there were some ancient rabbis who used to teach that there were not 10 commandments in Exodus 20. I'm, I'm not sure if this, is, this was God's intent, but it kind of makes sense, so just follow along with me. Some ancient rabbis taught that there were actually only nine commandments, not 10. And those nine are the first nine that we've looked at throughout this series. And as we've said, those nine are, are externally measurable. But that 10th statement they would say was different. As we've said, you know, we've said it's different. It deals with the heart. And also, as we've said, we can't fix the problem of our heart on our own. And so these ancient rabbis taught that there were nine commandments and that if we, if we follow these nines, if we don't bow down to any other gods, if we, uh, if we don't put any other gods before the one true God, if we revere the name of God and don't take his name in vain, if we honor the Sabbath day, if we love God, we find our delight in Him and our satisfaction in Him, it will produce a love for people. And in that, we will honor our parents. We won't murder. We won't commit adultery. We won't steal. We won't lie. And as we delight in God's law, and as we find our satisfaction and contentment in Him, then the 10th commandment, they, they would say, isn't really a commandment. Instead, The tenth is a a reward. It is a reward. That he will change our heart and we shall not covet. We won't want for anything else when when our delight is in Jesus. The psalmist summarized it so well in the most famous psalm, the 23rd psalm. And you all have heard this before. The first verse, he starts off by saying, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Where the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. Some translations say, "With Christ as Lord and leader of my life, when I'm delighting in Him, when I'm finding satisfaction in Jesus, then I will not want for anything else. That that's the reward for finding contentment and satisfaction in Him. I won't want what others have because I have all I need in Jesus." I will not want for more and more and more of the trappings of this world. I will want more and more of Him. Right? And then the trappings of this world will no longer be a pursuit of mine. For I have all I need in Christ. So I want to pray this morning. um, But the prayer I want to pray is actually straight from Scripture. It's from Psalm 51. And so as I pray this, I, I would like for you to make this your prayer as well. So let's Let's pray. And again, I'm going to pray from Psalm 51. It says this. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are God, my Savior. And my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in In burnt offerings, my sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. Amen. And so this morning, we want to offer you an opportunity to respond. Some of you, you're walking around trying to do all of the right things and you're like the rich young ruler. You're saying, what do I still lack? There's something missing. And there will always be something missing unless there's a change of heart. And we cannot, as we said, change our heart on our own. That is the work of, of Jesus to do. And so until we submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ, rather than the lords that we are submitting to right now, whether it's we're making ourselves lord or something else lord in our lives, we will always have an impure heart. But when we turn our lives over to Jesus, submit to him, trust in his work that he has done, when we confess him as Lord and repent of our sin, turning away from it and turning to Jesus, when we are cleansed in the waters of baptism, we are given a new heart, a change of heart, a a purified heart. And that's when real change happens from the inside out. So if you have never done that before, we want to offer you the chance to respond today. Or if you just need some prayer, I'm I'm going to be up here to your right as we sing this last song, and I would love to, to talk with you about what that means. Will you stand and sing with us?